Hello, everyone, and welcome to I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tom Stone, a senior research analyst at I4CP, the Institute for Corporate Productivity, the leading authority on next practices in human capital. The Next Practices Weekly podcast is one of the ways we share those practices with you by interviewing top HR leaders and facilitating discussion with the broader HR community on what high-performance organizations are doing differently with their people practices. From HR strategy to talent acquisition, learning and development, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and much more. Recently, my I4CP co-hosts Catherine Brecken and Eric Davis joined me as we provided a mid-year review of the 2023 priorities of I4CP's six executive boards. But before we get to that, did you know that in addition to being a human capital research firm, I4CP also has an executive search practice that specializes in recruiting diverse and high-performing human capital leaders? We help our clients, whether I4CP members or not, to successfully build their human capital leadership teams through effective placement of chief people officers, as well as leaders of diversity and inclusion, talent acquisition, learning and development, total rewards, and their people analytics functions. To learn more, just visit i4cp.com forward slash executive search. Okay, now for the discussion with Catherine Brecken and Eric Davis, providing a mid-year review of the 2023 priorities from I4CP's six executive boards. Thanks, Tom. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, just want to say I'm pretty excited that we're doing this mid-year check-in. I, th- I think it's been kind of a volatile first part of the year, especially for certain functions. And it's great to go back and sort of course correct where people's attention and focus are right now. Um, so when we originally did this study, which was November of last year, um, uh, the chief diversity officers came up with this list of their top four priorities, which was recruitment and retention of diverse talent, increasing buy-in and enterprise-wide, uh, buy-in enterprise-wide and refining governments of DEI efforts, implementing behavior on and competency models to increase inclusive thinking and leadership, and developing a structural response to equitably support reproductive right benefits. Some of these, I would say, have pretty much stayed in place. And and overall, I would say that the focus of the strategic plans that people have put in place um, are going along the same track. The difference is some of the drivers for these have shifted. Um, I think one of the big drivers that have shifted everybody's focus across the board is the sort of explosion of generative AI functions that have come out. Um, And one of the big concerns, and I know one of the big concerns that we've talked about with the Chief Diversity Officer Board is bias in AI, um, which is basically an extension of human biases as they go into what kind of data sets are used, how data is collected, um, how things are set up. And AIs tend to have a really specific kind of uh, way that they need to be approached to look at bias from both the human perspective and from the IT perspective. So uh, when we look at things like recruitment and retention of diverse talent, so at the time that we were taking the survey, uh, there was a lot of shifting around in the workforce. I know that we were having a lot of IT layoffs 
And a lot of times in manufacturing, the problem was not being able to find enough talent in the markets that they were looking for. So there was kind of, in one case, a need to retain and to uh, bring in new talent. And another part, there was downsizing going on. Um, so now uh, we're kind of looking through, say, with the lens of AI and bias, if we want to go to the next slide, um, what kind of disparate impact uh, AI could potentially have on who's participating in the labor market? What jobs are going to be impacted by AI coming in with these skills to be able to take over large swaths of particular roles and really jeopardize employment in those sectors? So our friends at Revealio Labs uh, put out a study just the other day um, where they found that 71% of employees in the 15 most AI-exposed occupations, and this was where they looked at a long set of occupations and picked out the 15 that had the task involved in it that were the most repetitive things that AI could potentially take a large chunk of that job away from current workforce. Um, and they found that 71% uh, of the people that were in those jobs were women, so there's definitely a chance that you could have a disparate impact on employment for women in some of the jobs that AI could be brought in to take over. And then they found that 32.9% of exposed employees are people of color, which was only slightly over the 31.6% average that we have in society, but it's still something that needs to be looked at carefully when we're looking at restructuring jobs around introduction of AI. So, um, yeah, pretty pretty impressive difference there, particularly on the on the gender side on the on, for women. Um, that's a that's a big big difference there. Seventy one percent for sure. Definitely. And when we see that, you know, post uh, pandemic, we've seen the resurgence to where women's representation in the workforce is nearly back to what it was pre pandemic. You don't want to lose those gains now, um, but in order to keep women in the workforce, in order to keep these jobs from being eliminated completely, there's gonna be some upskilling that would be required because the hope is with AI, and I know that Tom, you and I talk about this a lot because of your work on our previous AI study, that it's not so much about replacing workers as it is augmenting their capabilities to do more value added work. So, um, I see in chat, somebody goes, in what industries exactly uh, are the AI-exposed jobs? A lot of these were in support activities. Um, I know that they talked a lot about things like accounting, um, uh, back-end HR structure even was mentioned as some of the jobs that could have uh, some of the repetitive tasks involved, like benefits administrations, things like that. Um, uh, office work, some of the uh, administrative assistant work that's out there, because one of the big gaps that AI can tend to fill are administrative assistant tasks. Um, that's where we saw most of it. So um, let me see, did, they, uh, did the study offer any insights on how long we have to upskill these workers? Not necessarily how long, because right now I think we're still getting a handle on what adoption rates are going to be in different organizations. We've seen a definite upward trend of organizations that are now experimenting 
with different AIs for different roles, but not necessarily putting them into action in the live workforce. Right. Um, and we'll get a good sense for that question from our study that was mentioned. And, and again, the link is, is over in the chat for that because we specifically asked, like, where are you right now with implementing generative AI in particular or other aspects of AI uh, that you know could be used to either augment human capabilities or in some cases replace workers? So once we get those results from that study that, again, just went live today, uh, I think we'll have some, some good data of our own uh, to speak to that question. Yeah, definitely. Um, but we have seen an uptick in that. Now, the other seismic shift that we've seen, particularly on the CDO front, is they're facing a lot of emerging challenges um, from the social, political, legal aspect of things. Um, and this has really taken off quite a lot in the last six months. Um, and I think it'll probably be a theme that'll go through, at least in the U.S., through the 2024 election. So because it, a lot of it is just tied to political rhetoric and what's going on there. Um, I know that a lot of CDOs are trying to stay above it, stay out of the fray and uh, continue with the work they're doing supporting their organization's talent. Um, but at the same time, as you can see from the headlines that I've got here on the right on this slide, that's not always possible. Um, it could be around some particular initiatives that you have in your organization. It could have something to do with um, just trying to be vocal in support of certain segments of your workforce. Any of these could end up having a backlash right now, which I think a lot of the DEI world was braced for because we had a huge um, surge of interest in DEI and ESG related topics during the pandemic. There were a lot of pledges made, a lot of advancement going on. And whenever that happens, you pretty much expect there to be a pendulum swing at some point to where backlash will come in and people start challenging what you're doing. So the big thing that we have recommended at I4CP is just to make sure that for all of the programs that you have out there, all of the initiatives that you have ongoing, just make sure that you're pressure testing them, um, looking at risk mitigation, if there's challenges from external forces, uh, you know, coordinate with legal to make sure that you know um, the environment that's out there and how you can respond to it and shore up any of your internal support. Just make sure that you have your business case well-structured uh, for everything that you're doing. So and I know, Eric, that we, we did a, a recent poll survey on the legislation uh, around the country uh, facing the LGBTQ plus community. And last week, uh, Lori was with me and she shared just a few of the, the findings from that. So if you missed last week's session, you could uh, you could pull up that recording and, and learn a little bit from that. And then for any members on the call, I4CP members, we're going to be having a flash call. I believe it's sometime next week where I4CP members can learn the full results from that Pulse survey. And there was a lot more than what we even shared last week. Yeah, myself and my colleague Carol Morrison will be on that and we can talk through the full results and see how organizations are uh, dealing with some of the pushback that right. they've been seeing on the LGBTQ front. Great. And again, for that, that call is a, is a flash call for members only. And again, thank you, Zeta, for putting the link there for folks on the call that might be interested in that. 
wanted to draw attention to these. Uh, so thank you, Eric. Those were great insights as, as sort of an update as to what's facing chief diversity officers and their DEI teams. Um, we've, of course, had several calls on the DEI front uh, as part of the Next Practices Weekly series and wanted to just draw out attention to three of them here. We had one recently with Geraldine White from Publicis Group. Uh, we had one earlier, uh, you know, in the fall last year with uh, with Eloisa Domingo, hope I'm saying that name correctly, from Allstate. Um, all of these are recordings that are available up in the archive, um, and we're going to be covering similarly for each of the, the topic areas today. Um, want to encourage folks, particularly if you're new to this call series, we do record these sessions and they're all available up going back a couple of years now up on our website. So if there's a particular company you're interested in, particular topic, particular speaker, um, definitely peruse the archive and, and check it out. It's, it's almost like a, a nice sort of almost podcast uh, archive of, of all of our sessions. So with that, I'm gonna turn things over to Catherine. Let's move on to our People Analytics Board and learn a little bit about what their priorities were coming into the year and uh, where things stand for some of their initiatives today. Thanks, Tom. Um, yes, Catherine Brecken and I, uh, I have the lucky job of supporting our People Analytics Board. Um, it's a great group of leaders uh, in the human capital analytics space and um, really at the forefront of what you know, what organizations are doing with data and how to, you know, make data-driven decisions, really. Um, these were the four that surfaced from the priorities and prediction survey that came out um, in November, determining the impact and return on investment of emerging work arrangements, um, enhancing organizations' workforce planning capabilities, increasing speed and agility to turn data into insights to support business strategy, and scale analytical capabilities across HR and the organization, I'm going to address all of these with really two topics that are top of mind for people analytics leaders. Um, first, next slide. Thank you, Tom. Um, according to our board, and actually we met Tuesday, um, where we we like talked about all of this and and how those priorities have changed and and really they're they're evolving, but they're still top of mind. Um, so remote hybrid flexible work is still very much an unsettled issue in organizations across the globe. And you may be sick of hearing about it, your organizational leaders may be over it, um, but it's the issue that won't go away. Um, NBC recently reported that uh, Google sent out a memo indicating they're now going to enforce their hybrid policy. Employees must come in three days a week um, to the office or else. Um, and it's, uh, it's HR that will be carrying out the enforcement. So those who don't comply um, are going to hear from HR on next steps, according to that memo. Um, and in May, of course, we saw Amazon employees staged a walkout in part uh, to protest the layoffs, but largely also the return to office mandate. And you know what? Amazon didn't seem to care. <laughs> you know, they, they cited increased productivity and that collaboration that's been occurring as people come back to the office more often. Um, so like during this economic crunch, you're seeing executives push for return to office. And my take on this is, is that they're going to the mattresses, they're bringing back all the old tools that they know have worked in the past, and setting the right context for those requires people to work the way they did in the past. And that means um, being seen in the office, right? And so you're seeing this push to return to office from a lot of the major companies that have tried to remain flexible um, during the pandemic. Um, and, and, and you're seeing a dichotomy still emerged um, yeah, I don't know if you remember that Microsoft 2022 study that found it was 12% of leaders thought that their hybrid employees were being productive, 
or they were confident in that their employees in, in hybrid models were, were productive. And it was 87% of employees felt that they were more productive working remotely. That push-pull is still very much in existence. Um, and employees, even though they're mandated to come back to the office, often aren't, and no one's enforcing it yet. Um, so this big Google announcement, you know, I think is just the, the start of that, that hammer that's going to, that's going to come down. Um, and so the key questions people analytics leaders are thinking about, they're the truth tellers. You know, they, they've got to find out what, what's going on with their work arrangement. How is it impacting employees? How is it impacting engagement, attrition, productivity, all of those things. And so these are some of the key questions um, that they've been thinking about in terms of their evaluation of current work models, because that, that's what they're being asked to do is basically, um, in some cases, being asked to justify a return to office um, or find support for a hybrid policy. Um, but they, they really need to look at all of the, the metrics that they have at their disposal. Um, and, and their data governance policies are sometimes limiting on what they can and cannot use. Um, but they're, they're assessing out general attendance trends, um, looking at a difference in attendance by demographics, um, you know, looking at sort of what are some of the things that don't influence office attendance. Um, and one of my favorites is actually looking at um, the environmental impact of return to office plans. And I think that those who are doing that are finding um, their carbon footprint is shrinking with a more flexible plan. Um, and as you know, ESG reporting uh, becomes more important for organizations looking at the EU regulations that are coming down the pipe. Um, this, that kind of data is going to be uh, really critical and important. Um, so thinking about all the ways in which your, your work model um, can affect your, your business outcomes is what a lot of people analytics leaders are doing. And then, of course, there's a lot of uh, frustration. You know, you can, it's just like politics. You can bring the best data to your executive board, um, but if they subscribe, if they identify with a certain philosophy or a certain ideology, right? Um, it's really hard to convince hearts and minds with numbers. And so, um, you know, you can bring all this data you want, but then in the end of the day, the, you know, the executives are going to do the leaders going to do what the leaders going to do, um, and that is very frustrating for people in analytics leaders. You know, they go through a lot of work uh, in, in presenting that data. The other three uh, main issues that were the priorities at the beginning of the year, um, all of them, uh, generative AI is applying to and evolving. Um, this is, uh, when I say the, the opportunities and risks, these are, I think these are what leaders across the board are discussing in terms of implementing generative AI. Um, this is such a nascent field and, um, you know, very few organizations are mature in in doing this, um, and we're all kind of watching each other. Um, but I, I've got a great article I'm going to post. It is unfortunately behind the wall for I4CP, uh, how generative AI is transforming people analytics. Um, and we also just introduced a bias audit checklist for AI and algorithms, of course, that Eric mentioned. Um, but like HR has been using AI for years, just not this kind. Um, it, generative AI creates text, images, video, and audio um, using web and other data that it's been trained on. And um, that's creating a bunch of, uh, you know, really anomalies or paradoxes really is what I wanna say with, um, you know, copyright and privacy issues, but also the, you know, opportunity to increase productivity, the opportunity to increase, um, you know, data analysis across the board. You do not need to be a stats geek any longer. 
um, to, you know, find out the influence of, you know, engagement on attrition. Um, there are literally platforms now that um, you can ask that, that will, will tell you that. And so with the next slide here, oh, I forgot, yeah. So, so the underlying message for people analytics leaders is, um, is know thy algorithms. Um, and so we talked about bias before with Eric. Um, people analytics leaders need to know on the back end um, what is going on and the, the actual metrics that are involved in, in producing these predictions. So essentially, we're talking largely about predictions. Um, and so although it democratizes data and puts data analysis in, in the hands across the board of organizations leaders, um, even without that stats degree, right? Um, it's the people analytics leaders who need to know what's happening on the back end to control for bias um, and you know, make sure that the information that's being trained on is secure um, and uh, you know, is getting to the right people um, and making sure that those permissions are in place. So with that, we have a poll question. Eric. Uh, yeah, while, while people are answering the poll, I'll let uh, Tom go ahead and introduce that first. Yeah, just we're curious on this topic of, of generative AI, which of the following best represents the readiness of your organization's HR function to, to use this new form of AI? Um, so if you could quick answer the poll and then uh, go ahead, Eric, with what you were going to say. Yeah, I was just going to call out Beth Loken's uh, comments in the chat, uh, where she was looking at your network analysis question. Um, but what she was saying was that a lot of the questions that you were looking at on that previous slide were around attendance rather than performance or outcomes, um, or understanding the business case for in-person time. Curious why the focus on measuring attendance Seems like that's more of an ask for those leaders who want in office time more than true evaluation of the model. So what do you, what are your response to that? Um, you know, I think that's a really good point. And uh, I think this also, the, the questions that are being asked, yes. Um, in some cases they seem uh, definitely posed by those with a RTO perspective, but you have to remember too, that data is limited, you know, um, and, People analytics don't have access to um, all of the behavioral outcomes they wish. Um, and a lot of those can be sussed out to, to increase, I mean, to, to, to look at, at the end of the day, outcomes like productivity. Um, yeah. And, you know, we had a huge discussion in March, uh, the People Analytics Board, about what does productivity really mean? And it's different across the organizations. It's different across industries. Industries. Some are very matter of fact with an actual, you know, uh, calculation to determine productivity per employee, um, but others have a more um, a, a more nebulous vision of what productivity is. That's uh, you know a bit more hard to suss out and requires a lot of holistic definitions. Yeah, attendance is is at best a proxy and maybe a, a poor proxy for actual productivity that or outcome achievement that we would care about. So. And, it is easy to measure, uh, and so that's why it's probably where a lot of organizations start. And I'd add that we're going to look into this a lot more in depth with the productivity predicament report when that comes out. We did look at uh, what measures are being used, how you're looking at productivity, and how you're balancing it against different challenges in the workforce. So. Mm -hmm. So thank you everyone that, that did the poll. Um, not surprising that over a third said no plans yet with generative AI, not, not ready in their organizations, but interesting to see that about a third said preparing to experiment or, or use this soon in the future 
and 16%, about one out of six, saying currently experimenting. I think we've seen a pretty steady uptick in those as we've asked this question over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's coming I, fast I agree. and furious. It definitely is. Um, this is a, a, an example I pulled and only slightly modified um, <laughs> from a workforce solutions company that announced a new generative AI digital assistant for people leaders this week. Um, it's a conventional interface trained on your people data and external workforce data and allows you to ask questions just like this. Um, if I needed to find an external replacement for Tom, how long would that take? Oh, and who's this come, Tom guy? It will come back with an answer. Thank you, Tom. He's irreplaceable. See, you know, ChatGPT like has a sense of humor, right? No, um, I added that in there. But um, the other, the answer here was the one that was provided in the demo, and it, it really, you know, it was able to to parse out uh, employment and market data and and come back with four months. It would take four months to find a replacement for Tom, though, and and then give me indications of that that might actually eclipse or narrow. Um, in the future, and it had a nice sweet graph that wouldn't fit on this chart on this um, this page anyway. Um, so it asks you, you, it allows you to like ask these very specific questions about an individual even, um, but then you can ask um, sort of broader questions like you know what is the top reason why employees are leaving my company? Um, and it takes data from engagement, it takes data from other places, and you know, comes back with the calculation and an answer, and in some cases, a graph and chart, which are very, very handy. Um, I this I want to say goes back, of course, to what I was saying previously, is that you've got to know where the data is coming from, um, and you've got to know what is going on behind the scenes, behind the in the calculation and the algorithm. Um, so the people analytics field is is you know their minds are exploding right now. Um, there's just a lot going on and these uh, platforms are proliferating. And um, so with that, you know, Tom, I'll, I'll let you explain. Yeah. <clears throat> and so beyond the use of AI, which obviously is on the minds of people analytics leaders and really everyone across HR, um, people analytics functions do a lot of different things uh, in our organizations. And we've highlighted some of the work that they've done uh, in, in these sessions that you see here in our next practices weekly series. So if you miss these sessions with Greg Till from Providence or Rachel Russell from Microsoft, or Jimmy Zhang from Takeda, all of these over the past uh, six months or so. Again, uh, these are available in our recording archive, and, and they all touched on how these organizations are using data, using insights, using analytics to make better business decisions. Um, so with that, let's keep this train moving, and I'm going to pick up on the Chief Learning and Talent Officer Board, which I personally am the sort of research liaison for. And back in again in November, when we asked them what their top priorities were, these Chief Learning Officers and Chief Talent Officers, they indicated these four areas. Developing leaders for the new world of work, renewing a focus on performance and outcomes, creating a culture of learning that enables upskilling. That's sort of a perennial one, but the uh, added twist here on upskilling is a little bit more of a, of a recent nuance. And then achieving measurable diversity, equity, and inclusion goals, as Eric spoke to earlier. This had been on the board's top priorities for the past several years, but uh, but the, the key here was not just setting those goals, but actually achieving more measurable goals finally. So I also would like to ask a poll question. Um, I, it's basically those four areas, plus one more that I added in, leveraging technology to drive greater learning and talent outcomes. I'm curious which of these um, are currently top priorities for those of you on the call. So uh, if, if, you're, if you don't work in learning and talent management or otherwise have no idea, 
what the priorities would be for your organization. No need to, to participate here. But if you do have a good sense of it, um, uh, I would love to hear from you. Um, which of these are top priorities uh, right now in learning and talent management? And you can choose more than one um, from here. And if it's other, uh, happy to have you select other and then maybe share in the chat um, something beyond these five that maybe is a is is a top priority for you. We'll give folks another couple seconds to log in their results here. Thank you, everyone who's already done so. And thanks everyone for continuing to participate in the chat. Please keep that going. We've had some good interactions, including people answering each other's questions. Always appreciate that sort of participation. All right, I'm going to end the poll and share out the results. And interestingly, uh, developing leaders for the new world of work, I'm not surprised that that came in number one. Uh, it was, in a sense, number one for our Chief Learning and Talent Officer Board back in November. So interesting that it still is key for many of you. Uh, we were expecting very different thing from, things from leaders now than we were, say, prior to the pandemic five years ago. Renewing focus on performance and outcomes. Again, we've got a study on that that's going to be coming out very soon. Uh, and then you see the other ones here, really all five of these getting still strong response from all of you. So thank you uh, for chiming in on that question. As I was just mentioning, we've got our new study, the Productivity Predicament, um, new global study that we concluded recently. The report will be coming out soon for I4CP members. Uh, and those of you on this call, we'll be able to get a glimpse of many of the key findings if you join us on July 13th. So a little less than a month from now, we'll have our CEO, Kevin Oakes, and our senior research analyst uh, on our team, Molly Lombardi, who was the lead on this study. They'll be co-hosting the call with me to go through the key findings from this one. Again, that was one of those four uh, priorities that we just saw from the CLTO board. Um, I mentioned leaders being another one. Um, this is something that was covered in our recent uh, Culture fitness study, uh, finding that very healthy cultures have leaders that do these things. They lead by example. They're held accountable for employee outcomes. They regularly communicate the organization's values, and they address poor behavior immediately. Um, it's just something that we find over and over in multiple studies, uh, just how critical uh, having the right leaders in the right positions uh, can be in organizations. And then another one of those findings uh, in terms of priorities for the board uh, was around having a strong learning culture. Again, from our culture fitness study, we found that amongst the traits of fit cultures, the most frequently mentioned for fit cultures versus unfit cultures, uh, learning came in fourth. And it was five times more often mentioned amongst fit cultures than unfit. Um, so having a learning culture, very strong part of an overall strong culture. And when we dive into what a learning culture sort of is composed of, there's a lot of important behaviors and practices and organizations. Again, we've studied learning cultures going back many, many years now, but the latest findings listed these. Learning is espoused as, a, as an organizational value. It's right there with, with your other key values in your organization. Uh, measuring learning effectiveness and doing that well uh, across the board. Managers being actually re rewarded for developing and then moving their talent. I'll be speaking to internal mobility uh, again in, in a few minutes. Um, leaders practicing active listening and seeking to understand others' points of view. Uh, and then leaders who ensure that learning and best practices uh, are really freely shared across the organization. Just some of the, the many attributes of, of a strong learning culture. Once again, wanted to highlight uh, some of the sessions we've had here at Next Practices Weekly over the past six or nine months. 
we had Terry Hart from Zurich, North America, Diane Holman from Virgin Pulse, Pamela Matson from Outreach, and Paul Langloy from Ecolab, um, all this year, actually. Uh, so these were recent sessions on either leadership development programs that we wanted to highlight or how these organizations are developing and maintaining a strong learning culture. A couple of other things we wanted to note, we've been mentioning this AI and HR study. Um, we did have a session on, on, on generative AI that, that Judy Albers, one of our colleagues here at I4CP and myself co-hosted, that was back in April. So if you missed that one, uh, you could go back and, and check that one out. And again, we just launched a new survey on this uh, just this week. And then also we're going to be doing a survey on, and this speaks to L&D technology specifically, uh, a little bit later this summer. We did a study last year on your core HR, your HRIS systems. Uh, we're moving ahead with our sort of next leg of, of series on, on HR tech, and that'll be on learning and development tech. Um, so if you're interested in that, watch for a survey from us probably in late July, early August. Um, and in the meantime, we did have, a, if you're a member of I4CP, we had a flash call to get some of your input to, to feed into that survey. Um, that's also recorded for members and you can check that out at our website. All right, I'm also gonna speak to the findings um, when we asked our talent acquisition leaders, our, our talent acquisition board, uh, what their top priorities were back in uh, November going into the new year. Uh, and they were regrouping, reimagining and rebuilding the talent acquisition function, connecting with both external and internal talent uh, building capacity and gaining insight through technology and data, and thinking a bit more globally maybe than they have in the past. I want to first highlight this second one, and particularly the focusing more on internal talent. Um, this is something that we've heard a lot from organizations for several years. We did a study on internal mobility back in 2016, and then we did another study on workforce readiness, of which internal mobility was a, was a key component uh, about a year and a half ago. Couple of the interesting findings. One, 39% said that for most employees in their organization, it's easier to find a job externally than internally. That's kind of a, a sad figure uh, that it's that high. And then on the recruiting side, your talent acquisition side, uh, it's easier to hire far too often from outside the organization than inside. This really speaks to a deficit of strong internal mobility practices, strong technology to support that. Both of those numbers really should be much, much lower if organizations had more of a focus on, on internal mobility. Um, we found 19% of organizations, and again, this was about a year and a half ago, uh, currently had a, a so-called internal talent marketplace platform. Uh, I suspect this number's ticked up a bit since then, maybe around 25% due today, because it's a hot market. A lot of organizations are, are, are using uh, those vendors or using Workday or their core HRIS to, to create an internal talent marketplace. And I thought for those of you that aren't familiar with what that is, I would, I would show this example. This comes from our friends at Vertex Pharmaceuticals, uh, an I4CP member company that we highlighted in a guidebook I created on internal talent mobility. And you see here the sort of four main components of their platform. They use Workday as their core HRIS, and then they use ServiceNow as a sort of employee experience layer on top of that. And what this internal marketplace enables is four things. And we'll start uh, in the bottom left and sort of go clockwise around this, this semicircle. So first, it includes the competencies and the skills of the employees at their organization. They've gathered that data over time, um, and they've got it all in, in, included in, in Workday Skills Cloud. Then it lays out for employees uh, what the possible career paths for them are if they stay with Vertex, 
Um, by the way, the driver for them creating this platform uh, was, was a, a pretty difficult situation with the retention numbers several years ago. Um, and they decided they needed to have a platform like this to improve that situation. By now, they've gone from having sort of below industry average retention to far above industry average retention. And, and this kind of internal mobility platform was a big part of that success. Um, the third main area that, that these marketplaces enable is job matching. Um, in their case, they did matching both between um, individual skills and full-time roles, but also their skills and gigs or projects, smaller, smaller assignments that they might be assigned either for development purposes or just to uh, further the, the development uh, and, and productivity of the organization. And then lastly, in the bottom right, you see it also connects in with their LMS and their LXP, and, and they use MentorClick for mentoring support, um, Vertex U, uh, Vertex University, providing all the learning assets. So depending on what your skills are, it maps over and aligns to, well, uh, if, if you're looking for this particular job or, or gig uh, opportunity, this is the upskilling that you need, and these are the resources that we can, that we can provide to you. I see there in the chat, Beth, you're asking for the link to the guidebook. That is an, an I4CP member-only resource, but if you're with a member organization, um, we, can, we can make sure you get that link. It's one of three guidebooks I've created sort of in this area. The other thing I wanted to mention um, from our talent acquisition board leaders, um, sort of covering the other three priorities that they had back in November. So besides internal mobility, the other three priorities, these were some of the practices that came out of their meeting in March at our conference um, that they're really pursuing uh, to, to go after these priorities. You see several of them have to do with people analytics. So looping back to what Catherine was talking about from our people analytics board, leveraging data for better storytelling, um, more proactive pipeline through talent insights, you see some of them have to do with building out the talent acquisition function to be a stronger function in the organization. Uh, and then some of them have to do more focused on thinking a bit more globally and even globally within the organization, partnering with, with the different centers of excellence. Again, as we've done for the others, wanted to highlight some of the recent Next Practices weekly calls we've had that have focused on talent acquisition. We had one just last week with Grace and Christine from Vertex the company I just highlighted, um, great call there, and, and then some calls from some of our I4CP leaders recently as well. So again, check those out in the archive if you miss them. All right, here I'm gonna turn things back over to Catherine and let's hear a little bit about what the Total Rewards Leaders Board uh, said were their priorities going into the new year. Happy to, Tom. Um, so top of mind, as you can see, is the uncertain economy and how that's going to affect total rewards and the work they do. Um, assessing equitable compensation and pay transparency. So we're talking about equity audits and, of course, pay transparency regulations that have come into effect um, very significantly from state to state in the United States and also in other regions um, of the world. Customization of compensation and benefit strategies, so personalized comp and bends is a, is a big issue that's been forthcoming over the last couple of years and um, definitely a great focus. Um, and then uh, in, a, in, the, in the current talent, war for talent that we have, uh, and then focusing greater attention on workforce well-being. Uh, if you want to go to the next slide, uh, I'd like to share... Um, this is from a recent presentation to our, actually our people analytics board in May from Gad Levinon, who's the chief economist for the Burning Glass Institute. And I just wanted to show here, I mean, when we're talking about uncertain labor conditions, um, you can see uh, layoffs are, you know, as of May, like we're, you could see are we're starting to, to um, lag and follow what we saw in the tech sector really starting at the top of the year. 
And so that is cause for concern. Um, but we still have what is a very tight labor market. And uh, one of the things Gad talked about is that is because we are seeing far fewer workers age 55 and older returning to work um, as the pandemic, as we emerge from the pandemic. And um, it, as well as demographics, we're, our population is, is declining, uh, our birth rate is declining, excuse me. Um, so, so we're dealing with that issue. Um, and so uh, it, you're going to have a tight labor market kind of going forward perpetually. And um, so... As this all connects, of course, to pay transparency legislation um, that has come into effect, you know, and you had uh, New York City in November, but you also had California start at the top of the year. Um, and then, of course, uh, the EU regulations that are coming down the pike of the summer. Um, so this is happening across the globe and it's creating um, a lot of concern and, and um, some headache, frankly, uh, for total rewards leaders. Um, so one of the, the problems of this, of course, is that, you know, as these as this legislation is implemented, a lot of, you know, employees are learning, you know, what they earn compared to their peers and not exactly satisfied. So um, at the start of the year, we had a flash call uh, with a couple of total rewards leaders on this very topic. And um, as they prepared to implement, Cali you know, see California's law go into effect at the start of the year, um, these were the things that were top of mind and that were recommended organizations do. So if, you, if you're not there yet, but um, pay transparency is being discussed in your state, for instance, or your region, um, these are great things to, to keep in mind. Um, doing first an assessment um, and, you know, what is your current state of equity, really? Um, having pay equity in place, or at least a plan in place when transparency laws come into effect is, is critical. Um, because that is when employees start seeing the disparities and there's a lot of unhappiness, there's a lot of frustration, and there's um, oftentimes a, a lot of attrition. So making sure you don't have any um, scary areas, right? Take care of those first. Um, and you can see that uh, internal pay audit, uh, equity audit was, was one of the top strategies of leaders when we did our talent imperative study last spring. Um, a lot of leaders were doing that in preparation for, for these laws to take effect. Um, Ensuring leaders and managers can speak to the why and address employee and candidate requests and questions. So there is a huge need to upskill leaders to um, understand the compensation philosophy of the organization, which has not been transparent in so many organizations for years. So um, there's a, you know, a lot of education that's happening, uh, but then they also need to understand how to talk about it with employees um, and change management. You know, so we're seeing a lot of you know, culture change as a result of these uh, you know, regulations and what they're forcing. So um, making sure that you have a plan in place to, to address culture is really important. This next poll that we would love to have you take is um, just to get an understanding and assessment of how many of you uh, provide pay rates or pay ranges for job postings. And while people are answering that poll, I will post a quick article um, that we wrote on pay transparency and preparing for the California law, as well as a flash call that I referenced. Um, I'll make sure that those are in the chat. Thanks everyone for taking the poll. I'm gonna close it here in just a couple seconds and get Catherine's reaction to it. All right, let's see these results. Looks like close to 50%, 45%, said that yes, they do provide pay rates and pay ranges uh, for all positions. Um, 
Others, yes, but only for certain positions, some only in certain locales that require it, 20% there. Um, thoughts on this, Catherine? Yes, it is very different from uh, the poll that we took during that flash call that I just posted, um, where you saw the majority of respondents um, were yes, but only in locales that require it. And that itself was a big change from the pay transparency uh, data that we had um, from 2021. And so you're definitely seeing a trend, I think, towards full uh, pay transparency for all positions. Um, and, and some of the organizations that were really on the forefront of pay transparency, they were ready for California's law. They were still having trouble with pay transparency at, on a global scale and understanding why people in Manila, uh, you know, making it clear that people in Manila make this and people in California make this. Um, and if you go to the next slide, part of uh, this uh, issue is, is personalized compensation plans. Um, that has become really important or, or total rewards leaders have been talking about it more and more and more over the last couple of years as the labor market gets tight, understanding that one salary, one size does not fit all. And you have some who employ more, you know, better benefits and, and you know, less salary. Maybe they've got a family, others who really, you know, they're either motivated by bonuses. Um, and at the end of the day, you still need to provide evidence of pay equity um, for a for a lot of different uh, bodies of regulation and um, uh, so forth. Um, and also understand, you know, comply with these pay transparency laws. And so again, it goes to making sure that your managers understand, um, you know, how to how to personalized benefits work. There's pay transparency across the board. So you can see that, you know, um, Sally has, uh, you know, uh, it, they're in the, Sally's in the same position as Joe, but they're paid differently and it's roughly equitable or not. You know, in some cases you have people moving to different locations. And so um, they're going to be paid, you know, based on a geo, um, a geo span and have to understand why they're taking a pay cut. So all of this really speaks to the importance of transparency of the compensation philosophy. And that last slide was another smart compensation um, platform that popped up this week. And it was just showing you how, you, you know, you basically can ask a question and it'll show you all of the different, you know, it'll show you equity, it'll show you pay, pay matrix, it can help you personalize plans. So generative AI is really exploding on a, how all, a lot of this affects um, the total rewards field. Tom? Yeah, that's certainly something that we're seeing really everywhere across HR. When we did the the survey of priorities and predictions back in November, uh, ChatGPT wasn't on on really anyone's mind except those you know at OpenAI that were working on it. Certainly none of us though. Uh, so that easily that's the biggest change over the past six months. Again, we've covered total rewards and employee experience and related topics on a lot of Next Practices weekly calls in the past six months. So just wanted to highlight a few of them here. And then last, but certainly not least, can't forget the leaders of HR, the chief human resource officer. So in the few minutes we have left, uh, I'm going to focus in on just a couple of the priorities that they indicated um, from, their, from their higher level perch, if you will, at the head of our people operations. You see them listed here. Back in November, they said staying on the talent offensive and ensuring talent alignment, tight alignment to organizational strategy was a top priority, refocusing the employee value prop, avoiding burnout, and building and rewarding what they called ambidextrous leaders, those that can really be agile and also deal with seeming paradoxes that are in front of them. So I wanted to highlight just a couple of things here. First, on the burnout front, again, highlighting a call we had recently here uh, with Rob Cross and Karen Dillon, the authors of the new book, The Microstress Effect, 
obviously burnout often comes from big, obvious moments of stress in our lives, things that are significant and, and are clear to, to any objective observer. But often they come from so-called micro-stresses, those moments of stress that are triggered by the people in our professional and personal lives that are maybe so routine that we barely register them, but whose cumulative toll can really be debilitating. And Rob and Karen have done a lot of great research, hundreds of interviews with leaders to find out more about this. Um, they went into the neuroscience of it, and they shared a lot of the great findings from their work uh, on that call back on April 20th. The other area, it wouldn't be an I4CP call if we didn't talk a little bit more to close out on culture. Again, our culture fitness study, um, definitely top of mind for chief people officers, chief human resource officers. Key finding from that study was that high-performance organizations are nearly six times more likely to have fit, fit cultures than their lower-performance organization counterparts. A uh, couple of other key findings, when we looked at the data, we found that a fit culture is one that's employee-focused, inclusive, uh, focuses on quality, uh, so sort of a traditional measure there. We already spoke to learning culture and its importance, as well as being innovative and collaborative. We also detailed in that study the seven habits, as we're calling them, of very healthy cultures. You see that list here. Um, but for those that maybe aren't seeing the slide, I'll just read them off quickly. More flexible work arrangements, a learning mindset, boards, there are organization boards that really care about the culture of the organization, maybe demand metrics uh, in ways that they didn't in the past. Leaders who lead by example, leaders who are held accountable for employee outcomes, not just their bottom line and productivity numbers. Leaders who regularly communicate the values of the organization, including culture, cultural values, and then poor behavior uh, that gets addressed immediately. Again, those were the seven habits of very healthy cultures found in our culture fitness study. Just progressing here, wanted to again share, we've had a lot of sessions that focus on culture in organizations, uh, including one uh, two, actually, with our CEO, Kevin Oakes, and our very own Catherine Brecken, who's been with us today. Uh, the most recent one there was on May 18th. So if you missed that one and would like more on culture fitness, a lot of details there. And we've had some great guests as well uh, over the past six or nine months coming in and speaking to both culture and their broader HR strategy. Thank you for listening to this episode of I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I encourage you to join us live for these discussions each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific time, so that you can ask questions of our guests and co-hosts and participate in the conversation. Just go to i4cp.com forward slash events to register. We hope you'll keep tuning in as I4CP brings you more great HR executives to discuss how high-performance organizations are leveraging best and next practices in HR. Also want to remind everyone uh, of our Next Practices Now conference. Again, this is now open for official registration next March 25th through the 28th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, you can register now if you're already making travel plans for the new year. Thank you, and we hope you have a great and productive week ahead.